This morning, I want to share with you a message that um, I developed from a devotional I did recently on Psalm 23, just the first verse. And uh, I was so blessed by that study that I thought the whole psalm would be worth looking into. And um, if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23 should be close to the middle of your Bible. And um, follow along with me as I read that. Psalm 23. Yours may be subtitled, The Lord, the Psalmist Shepherd. Probably all translations have a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. F.B. Meyer wrote a devotional book that uh, I read recently entitled The Shepherd Psalm. And there he refers to the Shepherd Psalm, the 23rd Psalm, as the Psalm of the Crook referring to the staff of the shepherd, the crooked staff. And he makes a good note that this psalm lies between Psalm 22 and Psalm 24. I know it's obvious that 23 would be between 22 and 24, but what's not so obvious is that the psalm of the crook lies between the psalm of the cross, Psalm 22, and the psalm of the crown, Psalm 24. And so... We see in these three great, I think three of the greatest psalms of the shepherd David, um, the shepherd king, we see the progression of the three shepherd titles given to Christ in the New Testament. Namely, the good shepherd who died for his sheep in Psalm 22, the great shepherd in Psalm 23 who leads them and provides all their needs, and then the chief shepherd who's coming again in Psalm 24. <clears throat> and I think it's providential in the way that they're so ordered in the Scriptures because we must first know and meet the psalm of the cross. We must first know the shepherd, the good shepherd, who lays his life down for the sheep on the cross before we can move on to live with the shepherd who gives us all things in great care and mercy. And then that life of walking with the great shepherd prepares us for the coming again chief shepherd uh, in Psalm 24. I think we struggle to find three more Christ-centered psalms than these. Uh, I certainly can't imagine three that address Christ and his person in a more specific way than Psalms 22, 23, 24. And Psalm 23 of the three, is the most well-known 
certainly the most beloved. It's probably, I think you might agree with me, the most common, the most well-known chapter of Scripture in all the Bible. John 3.16 may be the most well-known verse, but this is probably the most well-known chapter in all the Bible. These six short verses are known by many people, Christian and non-Christian. Uh, there's no doubt who wrote it, David. David's heart and hands all over it. Um, it screams of David's character and nature. Scholars don't know when in his life experience he wrote it, whether it was at a young age or when he was fleeing from Saul or in later times in life as he reflected back over simpler times as an old king. But Charles Spurgeon wrote this about the psalm in his Treasury of David. Sitting under a spreading tree with his flock around him like Bunyan shepherd boy in the Valley of Humiliation, we picture David singing this unrivaled pastoral with a heart as full of gladness as it could hold. Or, if the psalm be the product of his after years, we are sure that his soul returned in contemplation to the lonely water brooks which rippled among the pastures of the wilderness, where in early days he had been wont to, to dwell. This is the pearl of the psalms, whose soft and pure radiance delights every eye. Meyer also went on to explain how one aged saint of old explained this as his creed uh, when he was pressed for what he believed, what was his doctrinal position, what was his creed. He immediately recited the psalm back to the questioner uh, from memory. And um, then he said, that is my creed. I need, I desire no other. I learned it from my mother's lips. I have repeated it every morning when I awoke for the last 20 years. Yet I do not half understand it. I am only beginning now to spell out its infinite meaning, and death will come on me with the task unfinished. But by the grace of Jesus, I will hold on to this psalm as my creed and will strive to believe it and to live it, for I know that it will lead me to the cross. It will guide me to glory. And another way it could be looked at is to compare it to the Holy of Holies. You know, this is the inner sanctum of Scripture. This is one of those most holy places in all of Scripture where there's calm, there's peace, there's meditation, there's contemplation. Um, every verse tells us what God is doing. Every verse brings comfort, reassurance, provision to us. You know, unbelief puts circumstances between itself and God so that we may not see the Lord. But faith puts Christ between us and our circumstances so that we may focus on Christ and not those circumstances. And I think we see the height of that in this psalm. And so as we look into it, may we look away from our circumstances and look up to the shepherd. Um, and just on a personal note, perhaps a lot of you may be like me. This is the first passage of Scripture I ever learned. I can remember as a small boy learning this in the King James English. And um, in fact, even when I think of it now, I still think of it in King James because that's the way I learned it. And uh, so as young children, we grow up with this psalm. 
And then, as we all know, this probably more than any other passage of Scripture is shared with people who are dying. Probably more than any other passage of Scripture, it's read at funerals. So in effect, this psalm bookends our life, does it not? It's what we learn when we first understand reading, when we first understand how to memorize Scripture. And it's what we hear as we pass from this life into the next. So it's very special. But I realize it's very simple, very plain. That suits me just perfectly. So pardon me if this seems simplistic, too plain. But I do pray that God will help us to see His glory in His truths, in things that we overlook. Often we miss the greatest glory in the simplest things, don't we? In a sunrise, in a sunset, in Psalm 23. So, let's look at it anew and afresh together. And um, just walk through it verse by verse. Verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. Now we'll come back to this phrase, saving the best for last. But... Just observe for now that this is the key phrase to the whole psalm. The whole psalm turns on this one line. The whole psalm rises and falls on this one line. The Lord is my shepherd. Second line, I shall not want. If you can say that the Lord is my shepherd, then you can say, I shall not want. If you have the Lord for your shepherd, then you have all things. With Christ comes all abundance, all provision, all needs met, all wants satisfied, all desires put to bed. So, again, hinging on the first line is this line, I shall not want. If you have Jesus, you get everything else too. Um, the sheep of a good shepherd's flock would lack for little and want for almost nothing. Everything depended upon the shepherd. The sheep of the Lord's flock lack for nothing and want for nothing. So we can boldly say, as Paul does in his letter to the Philippians, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And David proclaimed similar thoughts in other psalms, like Psalm 34, verse 8. He said, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Peter proclaimed the truth in another way. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So, what does that mean? Do we have everything that we think we want? Are all our desires, even in our flesh, fulfilled? Is everything we can imagine that we want or would be good for us, is that given to us? Obviously, the answer is no. So, what does this mean? What exactly what do the sheep of his pasture have such that they have no want? Well, based on the verses I just read you, we could make four points. We have all we want as his sheep. Not all we want, 
but all we want is a sheep. Two, we have all our needs. Not all our wants, but all our needs. Three, we have any good thing. And now God gets to decide what's good and what's bad. We don't. You know, a lot of times I think this is good for me, and the Lord knows that's bad for me. Fourth, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. So I think a better way to express this in more contemporary language would be to say that we have all we need to be content. There's a lot of talk today about contentment. Uh, Probably most counselors would tell you that one word they hear a lot of relates to contentment. You know, they're not, people aren't happy. They aren't content with their station in life. They aren't content with their spouse. They aren't content with their children. They aren't content with their job. They aren't content with their life. So if we're living in right relationship with Christ as our shepherd, our desires and affections should be changed. If he is our shepherd, and that, by the way, is our greatest gift, right? If he is our shepherd, then we should not want. We should be content. God gives us himself. But he goes beyond that and he provides our needs. He provides all that is necessary for life and godliness. As one old saint said long ago when he sat down to eat a meal after a long period of hunger, and the meal was just one small potato and water, he thankfully said, and by the way, isn't this a good thing to consider as we go into this Thanksgiving week? That saint said, all this and Jesus too? You know, when you consider that we have Christ, everything else is just dressing. So the first step to contentment is to accept Jehovah Jesus as your shepherd. Step number one to contentment is be sure that Jehovah Jesus is your shepherd. Uh, And that's, how could that be more simply stated in this first verse? The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. Or because the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. Step two to contentment is to know and enjoy the great shepherd's provision. All that he has for us, all the gracious provisions that we'll see in the next five verses here, verses two through six, we need to know what those are and to appropriate that, to receive that. And then the third step is to know and appropriate his gracious provision, not just in the pleasant walk, Not just in the good pasture, but even in the valleys, even in the hard times, even in the difficult paths, is that we need to know and appropriate that gracious provision. So, as we walk through these verses, I want you to consider this question. I I want all of us to consider this question. Am I content? Do I know and appropriate the benefits of being a sheep of the Lord's flock? And do I do that even in the hard times? Do I do that even in the valleys? Do I do that even when they don't seem as such gracious and good provisions? Verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
This verse speaks of one of our greatest needs that we don't even think about, especially as Americans. We're so busy. Rest. God provides rest. You know, isn't it interesting that God has created the very world to be such that one day in seven must be occupied in rest. We're designed that way too. We must rest. We must have a time of rest. Um, in Psalm 46, it declares, be still and know that I am God. So one way to really focus on the Lord as our shepherd is to be still, to be quiet, to rest, and know that God is your God. Philip Keller is a pastor and an author who was also a shepherd for eight years. And those of you my age and older may remember he wrote a book in 1976. It was very popular, entitled A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And in it, he talked about the need sheep have for rest. But he said you almost find it impossible to make sheep lie down and rest unless four things are met. Four requirements have to be met for them to be made to lie down and rest. First, they must be free from all fear. They're very timid and skittish, and unless they're free from all fear, they won't rest. Second, must be free from friction with others, with other sheep. Third, they must be free from torment from flies or parasites. And fourth, they must be free from famine, from hunger. Food must be in abundance, and they must not be starving. Otherwise, they cannot rest. So we see here that the great shepherd makes his sheep to lie down in green, verdant pastures of food. Where he's cleared the area of predators, removed all dangers, settled their fears, calmed the flock, removed strife among them, rid them of the parasites and flies that harassed them, and made it easy and abundant for them to feed and to drink. Notice he leads them beside still waters. Sheep are so skittish, as I understand it, that they won't even drink from a turbulent stream. They have to find a quiet pool from which to drink, or else they, they're scared. They will not drink from rushing water. There again, we see the tender care of the shepherd, that he leads us as his sheep beside quiet, still waters, that we may drink to abundance. And we're lying down in green, rich pastures of abundant prosperity. So thus we have real rest, real uh, relaxation. Verse 3, he restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. As sheep, we're sometimes in anguish or despair. We're not uh, who we should be. We grow weak. We grow afflicted, and we have another great need that the shepherd meets, and that's restoration. Our lives need constant revival, constant restoration, um, and we need real life restored to our souls from the only one who can do that, and that's the captain of our souls, the giver of true life. And notice how he richly meets that. Um, he give, also gives us guidance. He guides us in the path of righteousness. Uh, like dumb sheep, 
Sheep, as I understand it, are so dumb that they'll graze an area down to where there's nothing to eat, and they literally starve themselves or malnourish themselves from lack of nutrition because they just constantly eat the same spot. They have to be led to other pasturing. They have to be led to other places for nutrition. And um, like dumb sheep, we need that leadership. We need to be guided in paths of righteousness, not error, not unrighteousness. Um, we go down paths that we think are good for us, but they're not. Only the shepherd knows where the other pastures lie. Only the shepherd knows where the green fields are, which we can find our nourishment, our restoration, our revival of our souls. And by the way, this is a side note, but look at the final clause there. I think it's interesting. Why does the shepherd restore our soul? Why does he guide us in the paths of righteousness? For his name's sake. I think this is interesting that God's passion for himself comes forth in this psalm. I know that may strike you as bad when you first hear it. When we first hear about the passion of God for himself, we think, well, that's egotistical. That's prideful. That God would have passion for himself. I thought God loved me. And his passion's based on me. Well, that's true. God does love us. God does love you. And God loves his sheep intimately. But we see here a glimpse, as in other passages, that the ultimate purpose behind his love for us is his love for himself. And that may sound wrong, but remember, only God is worthy of love and affection. Only God is worthy of seeking his own glory. And since God is true, whom else could he seek except himself? Since God can only desire that which is best, whom could he desire except himself? And if he desires what's best for us, what is best for us? Himself. So how can he love us best but give us himself and give us what is best for his namesake? Um, not our namesake. David said this in Psalm 31, for your namesake you will lead me and guide me. And then in Psalm 25, he said, for your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Notice, too, in the Old Testament, how that even though God had his particular love for his people Israel, that when they rebelled against him, as he reflected back on it in the book of Ezekiel through the prophet, he said of his people Israel, when they were in Egypt, in verse 9, this is Ezekiel chapter 20, in verse 9 he says, But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations whom they lived. He started to destroy them, but he didn't, not out of just mercy and love for them, that's true, but primarily for the sake of his great name. He did not want his name profaned even among the heathen nations like Egypt. Then he took them out of the land of Egypt and into the wilderness, but there they, they rebelled again. And so in verse 13, he says, Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, before whose sight I had brought them out. Then, as they died off, and the children in the wilderness were growing up over the 40 years, he commanded them, they disobeyed, and he wanted to pour out his wrath on them, verse 
21, and accomplish his anger against them in the wilderness. But I withdrew my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. So God is ultimately focused on his great name. We too should be focused on his great name. But we see in verse 3, that he restores us. He gives us restoration, real life for our soul, and he guides us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. That leads us to verse 4, which says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now here's probably one of the most familiar verses in all the psalm that we do hear a lot on people's deathbeds. It's read to them then. It's read at funerals. But notice the emphasis is again on who? The shepherd. What's the reason that we can be assured that we fear no evil? It's because you are with me. The shepherd is with us. And what is he doing here? He's providing something else we need desperately, and that's safety. This world is filled with devils. This world is filled with threats. This world is filled with sin. We live in danger. And whether we realize it or not, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death on a daily basis, especially spiritually. But we should fear no evil if the shepherd is with us. But it also gives us some thoughts about death just think about what it implies. That death is not an arrival point. It's not a destination. But it's a passage. It's a valley. It's a pathway through. It's not something we arrive at, but it's a passageway through to something else. I think that's very important for us as believers to grab hold of, that there is comfort even in death as it's a passageway into something better. Um, And notice that we don't go through the valley of death, right? It's not the valley of death. It's the valley of what? The shadow of death. What's the difference between a shadow and something real? It's form over substance, right? Can Can the shadow of a lion kill a sheep? No. Can the shadow of your enemies do you harm? No. Can the shadow of the evil one bring us down? No. We, we may fear the shadow, but it's just a shadow. And the reason it's a shadow is because the great shepherd has defeated the enemies in the valley. And so we can celebrate the victory that he's already won. The lion and the bear and the wolf are dead. Death has been defeated. So we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And the reason there's a shadow is because the light that defeated the darkness now illuminates it. You know, you have to have light to have a shadow. And so the light of the glory of God who defeated death for our benefit illuminates the shadow. So we need need not fear even death. Our greatest enemy is defeated. We have nothing to fear. And what are the instruments of his protection? His rod and his staff. And what are these? You know, the rod 
or the club of the shepherd is what he used to beat off the uh, attackers, the wolf, the bear, the lion, or even a false shepherd, a robber of the sheep who came to take away his true sheep. And what's the staff? The staff, that's the crook. That's um, what he uses to guide, to correct, to chastise the sheep. So you see, the rod is a weapon of attack, a weapon of defense, where the staff is a weapon of correction. So with one, he defends us without, right? He defends us from enemies without us. With the other, he defends us from who? Ourselves. Because we are victims of our own folly. We're victims of our own sin. And so with the shepherd's staff, the crook, he corrects us. He reproves us. He gets us back on the right path. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now here, a lot of commentators think the psalm shifts from the metaphor of a shepherd and sheep to one of a host and his guest at a banquet table. Although Philip Keller, the uh, shepherd pastor, he says that the analogy is still of sheep and the shepherd, and that what he's really talking about is how that the sheep are taken up to the mountain highlands in the summertime, the mesas, the tablelands of a high pastures where they can graze in uh, luxurious uh, wealth and splendor in the bloom of the summer. Either way, the focus is on provision, and not just some provision, but abundant provision. So here the shepherd meets another need we have, and that, uh, that is of provision. And notice that the scene is not just of meeting needs. I mean, when you read verse 5, do you get the picture of just one potato and a glass of water? No. Preparing a banquet table before me in the presence of my enemies, where there's plenty, where there is rich abundance. So God not only provides for our needs, but he asks far more than we can ask or think. He provides that. He provides far more than we can ever ask or think. More than we can imagine. And it's not so that we squander it either. Notice, um, and by the way, before I skip to this, notice it's in the presence of our enemies. You know, they may gather around. The, the enemies of the sheep may gather around and watch them eat. But if the shepherd's there, and they've dealt with the shepherd, and they know what kind of defense he is, they dare not attack the sheep. So the sheep can enjoy the provision in safety and peace. And you can eat this great banquet in the presence of your enemies. They may growl, they may sneer, but the shepherd keeps them at bay. And I just think that's a beautiful picture of how the Lord gives us more than just our needs, more than just what we must have, but even this great abundance in the presence of our enemies. But again, why? It says, you have anointed my head with oil. Well now, oil 
is a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. It's also a symbol of honor and welcome. If a guest came into a house, as Christ did in the New Testament, and he was anointed with oil, that's a symbol of honor. That's great honor and welcome. And intimate fellowship being offered for someone to anoint them with oil. Also, to the sheep analogy, anointing a head with oil could be to patch up wounds, to be medicinal, to balm what's a rash, a raw, and provide comfort and ease. So, God offers us both honor and healing at this great banquet feast of abundance. And all this moving on is so why? My cup overflows. So it's not just that we have enough to be filled, but we have enough unto overflowing. And why is that important? Because out of our overflow, we share with others, right? The blessings aren't just for us. The blessings of this rich abundance are for all of God's kingdom, for all of God's plans and purposes and all of his people, not just for us. We're to be instruments of his overflow. You know, a lot of commentators make point of how the Dead Sea is at the end of the River Jordan tributary, and all the water flows in, none flows out, therefore there's no life in it. It's a Dead Sea because all it does is gather. It gets all the water from Mount Hermon all the way down the valley to it, but yet it's dead. Unlike the River Jordan, which overflows and serves as a channel of that water, a channel of that blessing. So the River Jordan is full of life because it passes on the gift. It passes on the abundance to others. So if we squander our blessings, if we receive them only for our benefit, we'll be dead. If we become a channel of blessing, so that we receive blessings only so that we might pass them on to others, then our cup overflows unto joy. It overflows unto grace and giving and abundance to others. Verse 6. Surely, goodness and loving kindness or mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice uh, this tender verse, I think this is probably one of the sweetest verses in the whole psalm, that here's a picture that I think goes back to the shepherd analogy, where goodness and mercy follow behind the sheep. It's almost like the shepherd dogs. The shepherd leads the flock, but what follows behind the flock? His trusted dogs who guard the flank. They protect the backside. They, they cover what he does not. And it's because they're his. They're like the celestial escorts of the people of God. Goodness and mercy. The two things we need most as falling, fallen men, another word for goodness, is grace, right? We need grace and we need mercy. What's the difference? Grace is that positive aspect of us getting what we don't deserve, right? We are graced by God. We receive what we do not deserve, and it's a gift. 
We didn't earn it. We don't merit it. But it's just a gift. Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve, right? We deserve hell. We deserve suffering. We deserve punishment and the wrath of God. And we don't receive it by His mercy. And these two things follow us all the days of our life. They're not just, they don't just show up every now and then. And the sheep, even though they might look back and the dogs may be missing, but they're there, aren't they? They might be tending to something behind the bush, behind the hill, behind the rocks. But the dogs were always there. God's grace, God's mercy is always there. Even in the hardest of times in our life, God's grace and mercy is with us. And the emphaticness of it is presented through the psalm where it says, surely. There's no question. But the psalmist is completely positive that God's grace and mercy will follow him all the days of his life. So we see how God, as the great shepherd, has met all the needs of the sheep for this life. You know, he's provided everything we need in rest, in guidance, in safety, in uh, protection, in anointment and honor and healing, in love, in grace and mercy. But there's one thing left, because this life will end, right? So what is left that the shepherd must provide? That we might dwell in his house forever. So here is the most comforting, is that even when we do pass through the valley of the shadow of death, it is merely a passageway for us because we go from this life into permanent, eternal fellowship with the great shepherd in his house forever. We don't just move from being servants at best. We move to being family. We become a part of his family. And we dwell there forever. So anyway, abundant provision. God meets our needs. God makes us such that we have no want. But here's my question. Then how does this work? I know all this sounds good. But if you're, if you're thinking ahead of me, you're thinking, well, but I do have problems. Uh, I don't feel like God meets every need I have. There have been times when I felt like God abandoned me. There have been times that I wanted God. I, I, I couldn't say I have no want. I mean, I can personally testify to many times in my life and my lack of faithfulness to Him where I cried out, why have you abandoned me? Why have you not given me my want? Why have you not given me my desire? So, are these just beautiful Hebrew poetic words? Are these promises? Are these foundational truths that we can bet our lives on? Um, I think the key to understanding all of what the psalm has to say in terms of God's provision for us is to go back to the first verse, the first line. The Lord is my shepherd. Um, we can never mine the treasure that's in that one line. The Lord is my shepherd. 
It's so simple, but yet so profound. You know, in Hebrew, it's just two words. In English, it's just five. And by the way, no matter what version of scriptures you have, they all say, the Lord is my shepherd. But in Hebrew, it's just two words. And that's Jehovah Raha. The Lord is my shepherd. So what is the key to understanding the provision and appropriating that provision unto all of our lives? It's that line. And think about it in reverse. Let's look at these words in reverse. First word, shepherd. In ancient society, a shepherd, and I've alluded to this already, but it was hard work. They had to live with the sheep constantly from, you know, 24-7. It was hard, nasty, laborious work. And this is why no one with any standing did it. This is why, uh, as recorded for us in Scripture, the Egyptians considered shepherds to be what? An abomination. The Egyptians hated shepherds, thought that was the lowest profession on earth. Um, they were loathsome to them. Uh, they were regarded, and, and I think one of the reasons why we see in Bethlehem, when the announcement of the birth of the Messiah comes, it comes first to the shepherds. They are the lowest people on earth. So shepherds are regarded as they smelled. Crude, rude, and not wanted. They were nasty, and nobody had high regard for them. So, it's amazing to think that the shepherd king, David, was once a shepherd of the sheep. The man who lived in royal palaces was once a shepherd. But how much more so amazing to think that who? The Lord God Almighty, the King of Kings, condescended himself to be a shepherd. A shepherd of a people of his creation. A shepherd of a people who rebelled against him and spurned all of his love. And yet, he humbled himself, gave himself as a good shepherd, giving up his own life for his sheep. It's pretty amazing. It's also something to consider that the, the sheep, their prosperity, their plight in life was tied to the nature of the shepherd. So, what kind of life you had as a sheep depended on what kind of shepherd you had. Now, isn't that true for us too? The nature of our life depends upon the nature of our shepherd. If we have a good shepherd, we have a good life. If we have a bad shepherd, we have a bad life. And Christ said we're either children of our Father or we're children of Satan. So we either have the perfect shepherd or we have the worst shepherd. There's no in-between. So our lives are either blessed with grace and mercy and all the abundance and provision that we need, or it's blessed with cursing. Even though in this life it may seem that the wicked prosper, we're cursed with the worst shepherd, and that of Satan himself. Um, Jacob saw that as he lay dying, and he said in Genesis 48, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. So the symbol of God's provision and care for his people became known as a shepherd. A shepherd had to have a caring heart. 
to give himself and his blood for his sheep. A shepherd needed a sharp eye to watch out for every danger and every opportunity for harm to come to the sheep. A shepherd needed to be dedicated and faithful so that he wouldn't fail to meet any comfort or provision the sheep needed. A shepherd needed great strength. You know, shepherds were like warriors. Even today, as I understand it, shepherds in the Middle East, although they don't have a club and a crook or a rod and a staff, but they have a gun belt and an automatic weapon because they live in dangerous conditions. So they need great strength to deliver his sheep from the teeth of the wolf or the jaw of the lion or the paw of the bear. And a shepherd needed gentle tenderness that would lead and console even the most tender lamb, the most timid and afraid lamb needed to be able to come and obey and listen to the voice of the shepherd. What a beautiful word picture there is in the term shepherd. The same Hebrew root that's translated shepherd here is also rendered in the Old Testament as tend, pasture, graze, feed, keep. Think about that. What God is saying is that He tends us. He pastures us. He grazes us. He feeds us. He keeps us. This is so much true that in the New Testament, the Greek word for shepherd, poimen, is the same word used for what? Pastor. So, and by the way, pastor is Latin root, the Latin word for herdsman or shepherd. So we can literally say, the Lord is my pastor. Not as human pastors are who fail you, who can't do everything, who can't meet every need, but the Lord is the perfect pastor of our soul. He is, in every way, the perfect pastor. Um, Jacob, David, and all the believers of um, the Old Testament saw that. But over a thousand years later, the promised Messiah, the descendant of the shepherd king David, he showed up and he took on this analogy to himself. Very directly, very plainly, in John 10, he called himself a shepherd of the sheep. And he said he calls his own sheep by his name and leads them out. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's what Psalm 23 says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And later he said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. When Jesus questioned Peter about his love for him, what did he tell him three times? He told him to shepherd my sheep. That was his command. And then Peter exhorts the elders of the church to pastor God's people as a shepherding implication. And to do that such that when the chief shepherd appears, you receive the unfading crown of glory. But anyway, back up one more word in the English to the little word, my. The Lord is my shepherd. What a difference one little pronoun makes, right? The meaning of the whole psalm hinges on this one line. 
The meaning of this one line hinges on this one word, my. Why do I say that? Think about what a difference that one word makes. Like, if you were to say, a child is dead, that's one thing. But what if you said, my child is dead? Is that not another? You see the difference? So, it's one thing to say, the Lord is a shepherd. It's even another thing to say the Lord is a great shepherd or a good shepherd or the chief shepherd. But it's altogether different to say the Lord is my shepherd. That changes everything. Now we've moved from just knowledge to appropriation. We've moved from intellectual, intellectually knowing something to experientially having something, relationally. Um, we depend upon the appropriation. We cannot, we cannot understand, much less appropriate, any of the truths of Psalm 23 unless the Lord is my shepherd. What a difference that makes. The difference between my is the difference between dead and alive. The difference between my is the difference between hell and heaven. The difference between my is the difference between demons. Don't demons believe that the Lord is a shepherd? They shudder about it. What good does it do them? So the difference between my is the difference between demons and saints. The difference between my is the difference between being his sheep and being a goat who will be sentenced to wrath forevermore. And then last, look at the subject, the most important word in the first line. My may be the hinge, but this is the foundation, the Lord. And whenever you see the Lord in all caps in the uh, Old Testament, you know that refers to the mystical name of God, Jehovah. The name that the Jews were in such awe of they wouldn't even pronounce it. We don't even know for sure that we pronounce it correctly. And it came from, um, it came from alliteration of vowel sounds of the mysterious name of God that we say is Yahweh today. Those are synonymous. We don't even know exactly how to pronounce it. But they were so much in awe of this name that they could only pronounce it one time, one day of the year on the Day of Atonement, and even then only in one place, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple or tabernacle, and even then by only one man, the high priest. Only he could say, the Lord God Yahweh, or Jehovah, or whatever they said. It was holy. It was set apart. God is in a category of one. So this and, and by the way, this is the same word that God used when he spoke to Moses at the Mount of Sinai and called him to his purposes. And Moses asked him, who shall I say is sending me? And God says, tell him the great I am. And the English words that we translate over lose their meaning. But the point is that God's saying, I am the essence of being. I'm not like you. I'm not a becoming, but I'm a being. You know, all of us are becoming. We're always changing. I'm, I'm different this second 
than I was the second before I said the sentence. We all are changing. God never changes. Only God has real life. Only God gives real life. We are just beings. I mean, becomings. He is a true being. He is the great I am. Um, such that when Jesus took that term on to himself in the New Testament, what did the Jews want to do? They wanted to stone him for blasphemy. They knew who he claimed to be. They knew he was taking on the holy name of God. So, who is this Lord? It's the Lord God Jehovah, Yahweh, the great I Am, the God who was and who is and who is to come. That's who the Lord is. And he's the one who in Psalm 24 is the King of glory, the Lord of hosts. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And yet, the Lord God Almighty, transcendent above all things, sovereign over all, and yet, He is the gentle and good and kind shepherd. Isaiah 40, verse 1 says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Then in verse 10 it says, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with His arm ruling for Him. See the great might and strength of the great Lord God Jehovah. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense is before Him. Shift. Verse 11, look, now, like a shepherd, He will tend His flock. In His arm He will gather the lambs, and carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. Isn't that beautiful? That the great God Almighty, Jehovah, that spoke and worlds appear, that he is our shepherd, the Lord strong in battle, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory, and yet he's our shepherd. And yet he binds us up in his arms, takes the lambs to his bosom as, as gentle as could be done. Tremendous contrast and uh, should drive us to praise. He is our shepherd. This great I am is our shepherd. And so as we sing that in our own heart, as you do that this morning, I want you to ponder that this Lord God Jehovah, this Yahweh, this great I Am, this is none other than Jesus Christ. He took that on Himself when He came. So we're not talking about two different people here. This is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. So we literally can say, the Lord God Jehovah Jesus Christ is my shepherd. The Lord God Jehovah Jesus Christ is my shepherd. Now, if you can say that, and that really is true, not just in your head as the demons, but in your heart, not just in intellectually and in, in your intellect, but in your will, that you've committed your life to Him. If you can say that, then everything I discussed to begin with now makes sense. Because think about it this way.
because or since the Lord is my shepherd or the Lord Jesus is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because the Lord Jesus is my shepherd, I shall not lack rest. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters. Because the Lord Jesus is my shepherd, I shall not lack life. He restores my soul. Because the Lord Jesus is my shepherd, I shall not lack guidance. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And even through the valley of the shadow of death. Because the Lord Jesus is my shepherd, I shall not lack safety. His rod and staff, they comfort me. Because the Lord Jesus is my shepherd, I shall not lack provision. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. Because the Lord Jesus is my shepherd, I shall not lack love. Surely his goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. Because the Lord Jesus is my shepherd, I shall not lack an eternal heavenly home. He causes me to dwell in his house forever. I close with the illustration that uh, I know you've all heard, but I think it's so appropriate that I must share it. If it seems cheesy, y'all know I'm a cheesy person. Uh, I've been accused of being cheesy and nerdy and a lot of other things. But I know most of you probably heard this story, but it fits so perfectly. I can't think of a better passage or text to apply it to. And the story is about a rich man who was an uh, avid art collector. He, uh, collected, he was wealthy, and he collected a lot of art, and he was widowed. And he had just one son, and his son was called off to war. He went off to war, and, uh, but the man uh, continued to accumulate wealth. He had a great collection of Monet's and Rembrandt's. Picasso's, he became famous throughout the art world for his art collection. But while his son was away and he was alone, he got word that his son was killed. And so he was devastated. And uh, someone came to visit him right before Christmas. And he knocked on the door. He went to the door and the guy said, You don't know me, but I knew your son. And your son saved me in battle. He drug me to safety. And I consider myself to be an artist. And so I sketched this portrait of your son. And I want you to have it in honor of him because he saved my life. Well, it wasn't a very good, it certainly wasn't a, a portrait that would win a prize. It wasn't a poor portrait that any art collector would want. It was sloppy, but it did have great meaning to the father, obviously because of his son. And so he treasured that. He framed it and put it in the midst of his great collection. And uh, he could see in that portrait something of real resemblance to his son, so he treasured that more than any other thing he had. Well, anyway, the day finally came when the man passed. And when he died... All the art world was foaming at the mouth for a shot at the art collection. And so the word was distributed among art collectors of the world that they would auction off all this great collection. So all these art collectors showed up for the au auction. And uh, 
there was such great anticipation for these collections to finally be available to people of wealth to gain them and add them to their collection. Well, the auction began, the auctioneer came out, and they brought out the first piece to be auctioned off. Everybody was wondering what it would be. You know, would it be something that would fetch the record prize of millions of dollars or what? Well, they brought out the sketch that the soldier had done of the man who had saved him in battle, of the man who had died of his son. They brought the sketch out. Everybody looked at it, didn't, know, didn't have a clue what it was. They could tell it wasn't professionally done. And he said, so the auctioneer says, so who will start the bidding at $100? Well, of course, there was silence, and he kept on and kept on. And finally, somebody in the back yelled, that's not what we came here for. We want to bid on the valuable art. Bring it out. And he said, no, we must bid on this first. And so finally, a voice in the back said, I'd like to have it. It means something to me, so I'll give $100 for it. And it was the soldier who had painted it, who brought it to the man. Well, so he came up, paid the $100, got the portrait, and the auctioneer slammed the gavel down and said, the auction's over. And everybody was uh, aghast, stupefied, mortified. And uh, they said, what about all the other valuables? We, we want to bid on That's what we came to bid on. And the auctioneer said, nope. According to the will of the Father, he who gets the Son gets it all. So the man who got the portrait for a measly $100 got all the treasures of art. Well, I know that is a cheesy story, but it vividly illustrates to me the truth of Psalm 23. He who gets the Son gets it all. If the Lord is your shepherd, you have no want. If the Lord God Jehovah is your tender, loving, compassionate shepherd who binds you up in his arms as a lamb, there is no provision that goes unmet. There is abundance, even to share with others. There's safety, there's security. If the Lord God Almighty is your shepherd, you have no want.